And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. As I have mentioned so many times before, the chapter and verse divisions in Scripture are completely artificial and often kind of arbitrary, and such is the case with the division between chapter 1, verse 31, and the first couple of verses of chapter 2. There's no reason for that break. If you were going to insist on putting chapters and verse divisions into the text of Scripture, you would actually move it ahead to chapter 2, verse 4. But sometimes that's led to people not really grasping that these two verses are connected by that word, thus. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 states, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That's a statement of what the late Francis Schaeffer used to call propositional, factual, and true truth. It's not ambiguous, it's not difficult to interpret, it's not an enigma wrapped in a mystery and covered in darkness or some silliness like that, especially in light of the fact that these two chapters are connected. So we get to the end of that, there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day, and we go on into the first verse of chapter two, thus, in this way, so, this is how, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So that word, thus, which connects these two sections together is making plain that this description of what God had done in Genesis chapter 1 is a description of how God made the world and of the fact that when God made the world, it was all very good. The creation being completed God, the creator, looked upon all that he had made. And as he looked upon all that he had made, he found, and I think this is probably shouldn't come as any kind of a surprise, he found that it was all very good. The Hebrew commentator, Umberto Casuto, wrote, on the previous days, the words that it was good were applied to a specific detail. Now, God saw everything that he had made, the creation in its totality, and he perceived that not only were the details um, taken separately good, but that each one harmonized with the rest. Hence, the whole was not just good, but very good. An analogy might be found in an artist who, having completed his masterpiece, steps back a little and surveys his handiwork with delight, for both in detail and in its entirety, it had emerged perfect from his hand. So God steps back and he looks at the whole world that he made as day six is drawing to a close, and he sees the interaction of all the different pieces that he has put into place in the physical creation, including Adam and Eve, and he says, this is all very good. 
The thing is, this provides us with a bit of a dilemma if we're inclined to think of the words of Genesis 1 and 2 as anything other than or less than propositional, factual, and true. Were the heavens and the earth and all the host of them actually finished at the point at the end of the sixth day when God declared everything was very good, or were they simply in process? If you're going to try to draw a diagram, we would look at certain models of this, even the theistic evolutionary models, and say, well, there's this line going up, and it continues going up. This is still in process, and at some point along that line, God looks at things and he says, well, it's all very good. And we could buy that if there was any reason for us to think that the creation was not finished at the time that God stepped back to look at it, but scripture is really quite clear that it was. So all of the evolutionary models, even the various theistic options present a problem, a problem for understanding this text because we have to assume that if God used a mechanism like evolution to bring things into being, then that would still be ongoing today. And then we're trying to harmonize scripture which says things were finished with a model that says, no, everything has always been in process and always will be. But I believe the clear intent of this passage is that at the end of day six, we have arrived at the pinnacle of creation. At that point, in terms of God's creative work, everything was as good as it was ever going to be. Hence, God saw everything that he had made, the heavens and the earth and the whole host of them. And behold, it was very good. As it said in that other verse, on the seventh day, God finished his work um, that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done, which further emphasizes this point. Moses writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I believe that with all my heart. This book is not a hodgepodge of little bits and pieces put together from ancient sources and, and somehow gathered up in a later age. This is the work of Moses. Jesus acknowledged it to be so. And if it's not, then we have to answer some questions about Jesus saying that Moses wrote this. And if he knew that Moses didn't write it, but he said that Moses wrote it, that raises some ugly concerns. And if Jesus didn't know that Moses didn't write it, that raises a whole different set of problems. So I believe this book was written by Moses. I believe it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God carrying him along as he did all of the authors of Scripture to make sure that the revelation that God gives of himself is actually a revelation of himself. And one of the things that he wants the people of Israel to know as they contemplate him is that on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. That first statement should not be taken as though God was still working on the seventh day and then he finished, but rather as day six comes to a close and day seven begins, morning giving way to evening once again. That's the pattern in Hebrew scriptures. There was evening and there was morning. So the next day begins as evening falls. Um, God stopped creating. 
And that's really what that word translated finished here means. God stopped. God ended his work. It was finished so that he ceased from it. And it's, it's really clear. There's, again, there's no ambiguity in that idea of God having finished his work. The Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, drawing on some different sources, actually has that verse this way. God completed in the sixth day the works that he did, and he ceased on the seventh day from all his works that he did. Either way, the way the Septuagint has it, the way that our English translations have it, God's work of creation is not portrayed as a process of adaptation and change that is still ongoing. God's work of creation was finished. In that day when God looked at everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and because it was finished, he stopped working in that way. Whatever adaptation and change may have taken place since then, It's not a matter of something new being brought into being. God's not doing that anymore, and we as human beings certainly don't have the power to create new things. As we've seen, the Septuagint used the Greek words for completed and ceased in Genesis 2. More recent translations into English typically have it finished and rested. Either way, there came a fixed point in history When God's work of creation was over, God finished it. He ceased from doing it, which is a better way to understand the Hebrew word translated rested in this passage. Now, above all, when we look at that word rested, we need to stay completely away from the idea that the fact that God rested is an indication that he stopped creating because he was tired and worn out through the work of creation. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber and sleep. The Lord does not faint. The Lord does not grow weary. All sorts of texts make it very clear that that's not what was happening here. And again, there's more in the Hebrew word than we see in the English word. Because we read rested and we think of ourselves and our needs after putting in a long hot day in the garden under the sun. But the Hebrew word translated rested here is just another Hebrew word for ceased or stopped or ended or finished. Fill in the blank. So it's not saying he stopped and then he rested. It's doing what the Hebrew scriptures so very often do and saying he stopped, he really stopped. It's making the point by repetition. God ceased, God stopped, God ended his work of creation because having fully prepared the world for his image bearers, and that was a point of everything that leads up to the creation of Adam and Eve, God was preparing a world for people that he would make in his own image, and having created that, there was no more creating that needed to be done. In this context, then, he rested from the work of creation. He ceased the work of creation. That is not to say that God ceased all working. In the same way that we can read that God rested, but we know from other passages of Scripture that God does not grow tired or weary, um, we can read here that he rested, he ceased, he finished the work of creation, 
But that doesn't mean that God just took a little break and then sat back to watch everything that he had made unfold. In fact, as we were studying through the Gospel of John last year, we saw that in John chapter 5, Jesus said, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Interestingly enough, Jesus said that when he was accused of working in such a way that he was violating Sabbath law. But Jesus said, no, what I did is not violating Sabbath law. In fact, God continues to work, and so do I. So although the work of creation was completed on the sixth day, what we see going forward is God's work of providence. God is manifest to us through his work of creation and also through his work of providence, as we affirm in Article 13 of the Belgian Confession. We believe that this good God, the God who, according to the previous article, created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing, we believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. The Heidelberg Catechism is even more specific about this ongoing work of God. It says, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth, and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things come to us not by chance, and that's such an important concept in this doctrine of providence. Nothing happens by chance, but all things come to us from his fatherly hand. God made the world, he created all things by the word of his power, he brought into being a universe that had not previously existed from things which did not previously exist, and he fashioned and made it according to his own sovereign plan to be a home for people who would bear his image and proclaim his glory and his goodness. And then he continued, having finished his work of creation, to uphold that world by his powerful hand and to so govern it and rule over it and all of its creatures that nothing has ever happened in the history of this universe happened by chance. That's why we can't accept the idea that somehow in the building blocks of creation there are causes that are not directly controlled by God and are working in a somewhat random fashion. Well, the work of creation had an end point, the work of providence. God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory, that work goes on to eternity. We see it all over the scriptures. We look at the little app on our phone that says, well, it's not supposed to rain today. And we just think in terms of, well, I guess the weather patterns are such that it's not going to rain. But throughout scripture, 
rain and drought, all of these things are perceived as the direct working of the providence of God according to his sovereign power and plan. That's why we pray for rain when we need rain. We pray for rain because we believe that that is something that God can do because the cycles of rain and drought and so forth are fully in his hand and he controls these things in such a way that scripture looks at them and says this is God at work in our world. So his work of providence goes on. He has rested from the work of creation but the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has never ceased for one instant working out his sovereign, holy purpose through and in and for the world that he created. There's one more statement of propositional, factual, and true truth that we need to address in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, and this takes us off in a little bit different direction. Verse 2 said, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. But then verse 3 goes on to say, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now there is not time, as tempting as it is, to address all of the various ideas about the seventh day and the Sabbath that might exist just in this room, never mind all of the opinions that have held sway down through the history of the church, but I do want to highlight this. I want to say this. When God completed his work of creation, he did not set aside a day to kick back in a hammock and relax with a cold drink. When God finished his work of creation, he did not inaugurate the Monday to Friday work week followed by a two-day weekend, which weekend would be given over to our pleasure and recreation. When God finished his work of creation, he blessed the seventh day and in blessing it, he made it holy. And there's no other statement in Scripture that talks about God making something holy that we would take as lightly as almost everyone takes this. It has implications far beyond the modern concept of the weekend. Just stop and think about that. We call it the weekend as if our week begins on Monday because that's the first time that we go to work and we work Monday through Friday and then we have Saturday and Sunday as the end of the week. But the seventh day certainly is the end of the week, but what did, when did Jesus rise from the dead? Early in the morning? On the last day? No. Early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb and they found that Jesus had been raised. When we ascribe Sunday to the weekend, and we start thinking in terms of, well, what was God actually doing when he finished his creation? Often Sunday ends up being really nothing. It's not the Lord's Day, which is a very biblical term. It is a day, and it is the Lord's. It belongs to him. It just becomes another day to sort of decompress maybe from the things that we were doing on Saturday, which were different from the things that we were doing Monday to Friday. 
But when something is made holy, and significantly, this is the very first use of that word holy in all of Scripture. When something is made holy, it is set apart from the mass of other things. In this case, it is set apart from the other days of the week. And when something is made holy, it is set apart for the glory of the one who set it apart and made it holy. In this case, it is set apart for the glory of God, the creator of all things, who in fact is the only one that can make something holy. There's another whole sermon, I know I say that a lot, but it's true, that we would need to do in order to deal with some of the questions that arise from that. Some have argued from this sanctifying of the seventh day that we ought to continue worshiping on the seventh day, not the first day. And there's all sorts of questions that can be addressed from other passages of Scripture. One thing I want to address right now is that while some have argued that this sanctifying or making holy of the seventh day has nothing whatsoever to do with the old covenant Scripture, the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, that's just patently false. Um, If we believe that Moses was the one through whom God brought Genesis to the people of Israel, then Genesis is the introduction to the book of the covenant and it provides the context for the Decalogue. But the Ten Commandments had been received by God's people before they received this written revelation contained in the book of Genesis. So the commandment, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy preceded the written revelation of God blessing and making the seventh day holy. So it explains, this this text in Genesis explains to people who had already received the law, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, why they ought to remember that to keep it holy. The law was given first. The written explanation came later, so we cannot separate these words found in Genesis from the commandment that's found in Exodus chapter 20. And the importance of that is something I do not have time to go into, but we will at some point in the future. We'll address that. What are the implications of that for Christians today who believe that God's law cannot save us? We know that but that God's law ought to inform our grateful living before God. Did the Old Covenant Sabbath, which was observed on the seventh day of the week, somehow become the New Covenant Lord's Day observed on the first day? There are people who believe that. What would that mean for us? Are we allowed to have fun on the Lord's Day? I'm tempted to say no, but that kind of put a wet blanket on the picnic, wouldn't it? I... (laughs) I remember talking to an older lady in our church in Winnipeg who was talking with another older lady, both of whom had come from the Netherlands at some point, and they were discussing, you know, whether or not they were allowed as children to ride their bikes on the Lord's Day. And the one woman said, well, we just, we weren't allowed at all. We couldn't ride our bikes. That was considered to be something you would not do on the Lord's Day. And the other woman said, well, we were allowed to ride our bikes but we weren't allowed to enjoy it because 
they lived outside a circle that had arbitrarily been drawn around the church, and from outside that circle, you could ride your bike to church, but it wasn't for fun. It was just to get there and get home again in a little bit more efficient way than, than actually walking. I hope it's obvious that that's kind of missing a point here. What can we do on the Lord's Day? What can't we do? Everybody wants a list. And I will never give you a list and say, these things you must not do, these things are okay. Because the problem with a list, especially a list of negatives, is that the debate never ends because the question is never fully answered. So, you know, years ago they were talking, can we ride our bikes on the Lord's Day? Well, you know, yes or no, fine, it's on the list. Can we play video games? It's really pretty restful. You don't have to move anything but your thumbs. So it seems like, you know, there's always something new. We're going to see this in another context in the next couple of weeks. And we need to address these things from Scripture, but we need to address them from Scripture having started with the principle. And the principle here, the creation norm that we're talking about, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Under the old covenant, God elevated one day in seven above all the others. He made it holy so that people would remember at least once a week that their very existence was completely dependent upon the work of God and remembering that reality, then ascribe to him the glory that is due his name. Now, if that was true under the old covenant, which we know from the book of Hebrews and all of scripture really was inferior to the new covenant, but it was true that God made that day holy and he said, I want you to focus on me and to remember me on that day, how much more would that be true? For those of us who have an even better understanding that our creator, of what our creator has done to redeem us in Christ. We seem to have this thought that God instituted the Sabbath day so that people would remember he was the creator of the world, which is really true. But now under the new covenant, the fact that Jesus has saved us by his grace through faith means we don't even have to stop and think about him once a week. That should be disturbing. The seventh day, interestingly enough, I think, was the first full day of a completed creation. Up to that point, everything had been being put together by the creative work of God. So the seventh day is the day, the first day that Adam and Eve begin to live in this remarkable new world that God made. And when Jesus stepped out of the tomb, victorious over death and hell on the first day of the week, remember, Sunday is not the weekend, it's the first day, that became the first day of new creation became the first day of something that had fundamentally changed, that had not been that way since the fall of man, and now it is because Jesus Christ conquered death. No wonder early Christians, including John the Apostle, called it the Lord's Day. 
And I think that's something that we need to think about. In reality, though, every day belongs to God in the new creation, not just the seventh day, not the first. Every day, all of our lives, they belong to God. I think the point of this cycle of first day as a seventh in the old covenant was just to make sure that everybody remembered that truth. And having said that, I can't think of a better way to sort of draw this to a close today than with Lord's Day 38 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks us the question, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, if you confess that the Heidelberg Catechism is an accurate reflection of God's word to his people, there's an assumption here that all of the commandments, including the fourth commandment, have some application to us as Christian people living under the new covenant. There's not a single one of these days where we're asked in the Heidelberg Catechism, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? Well, nothing. God has no will for me in the fourth commandment. And in this case, we are taught to answer first that the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained and that especially on the festive day of rest, that would be Sunday, I regularly attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. That's what this day is for. Second, that every day of my life, I rest, I cease, I stop, I am finished with my evil ways. And I let the Lord work in me through his spirit and so begin already in this life the eternal Sabbath, which is drawing from the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 4, where the writer of the Hebrews says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whomever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Which I think is what's really at the bottom of the pushback that we see so often on the idea that God has set apart a day for us to focus on worshiping him. It's the thoughts and the intents of our heart. May God give us grace today then and every day to rest fully in the mercy that he has shown us in our Savior Jesus Christ, understanding that his work of providence goes on, and that he will never abandon us, leave us, or forsake us. He is with us always. Let's pray. Father, on this Lord's Day, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that our lives are not our own, even our bodies are not our own. We were bought with a price and we have been called to glorify you in the things that we do, the way that we use our bodies, the way that we use our minds. We've been called to glorify you, Father, in the work that we do from day to day. 
but especially, Lord, we have been called to glorify you in worship and in praise, in thanksgiving, in understanding that nothing that we have comes by chance, nothing that we have comes through our own hard work, everything comes through your sovereign and divine and powerful upholding and governing all of your creatures and all of our actions. Father, help us to be thankful for all of the good that we have. Help us, Father, to look to you for whatever good we feel that we need. And Father, help us always to give you praise that you are at work in us and through us to accomplish your purpose in our lives and in the world that you made. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.